From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The expanded child tax credit reportedly kept millions of children out of poverty last year. So why won't Congress extend it? Colorado Senator Michael Bennett pushes back against naysayers. People will think of all kinds of talking points to not benefit people in our society that need it most. I don't understand it. We'll sort through the debate with Senator Bennett, who's not giving up his fight to make it permanent. Then there are now three Republican county clerks under investigation in Colorado for how they handled sensitive election software information. We'll check in with CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland about the scrutiny. And later, Mixed Company is a collection of short stories with a common thread. In the best case, there's a meeting of equals that are each learning from each other. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. The expanded child tax credit kept more than 3 million children out of poverty last year. That's according to the Columbia University Center on Poverty and Social Policy. The program meant that families with children received up to $300 per child every month. Researchers found that many families spent the money on basic needs, like utilities, food, and childcare. But those payments stopped last month when Congress failed to pass the Build Back Better bill, which included an extension of the credit. Colorado Senator Michael Bennett is one of the main champions of the program. He wants to make it permanent. Senator Bennett, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Nathan. The expanded child tax credit, which reportedly kept 3 million children out of poverty last year, ended in January because Congress has not yet passed the Build Back Better bill. What is the future of that tax credit right now? Well, right now, it's very unclear what's going to happen. I strongly believe that we should make it permanent. As you said, I think we we kept 3.7 million kids actually out of poverty last year, reduced childhood poverty almost in half, and cut hunger in this country by 25% during this pandemic. So uh, I believe there was need for this even before we had a pandemic. The last thing we should be doing right now is raising taxes on working people while they're still battling a pandemic. I mean, there has been some discussion of breaking up the Build Back Better bill to increase its chances of getting passed, but that also means removing the child tax credit from the overall bill. Is that something you support? I mean, I I sent a a letter uh, a couple weeks ago with Sherrod Brown, my colleague from Ohio, and Cory Booker from New Jersey, and, and, and Reverend Warnock from Georgia, saying that we thought together that the child tax credit expansion should be a centerpiece of whatever we end up passing in terms of Build Back Better, and that continues to be my view. I My mind is wide open in terms of how to get that done, whether we keep it all together, whether ways of splitting it up. I just don't want to lose sight of something that has been the most meaningful tax relief for working families in generations and 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 the and the most substantial reduction in poverty in the United States for generations. Unlike some of the other things that's in Build Back Better, 
This has actually already been implemented, and it's been implemented on a monthly basis in Colorado. A million kids are benefiting from this tax credit, roughly 90% of the kids in Colorado, and their families are are, 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 are gaining an average of about $450 a week that they can use to spend on rent and groceries and, really importantly, child care. So, look, I, we, we should find a way to do this in a temporary way if that's if that's all I can get people agree to over the long run, I think it's really important for us to, to make this permanent. Have you heard from constituents upset about the end of the monthly payments? Yeah, we have. They're, they're surprised by it. They don't understand it. Of course, they don't really, you know, they have difficulty understanding it to begin with because we, I think the, we have not done a good enough job explaining what's going on. You know, this was not just about COVID relief, this piece of the, of the package was about recognizing that for 50 years we've had an economy that in the state of Colorado and across the country that's worked really well for the top 10% of Americans, but hasn't really worked for anybody else. We have since 2001 uh, cut taxes by $8 trillion, almost all of which have gone to the wealthiest people in the United States when we face some of the worst income inequality that we've had since the 1920s. And this was a way of being able to say to working families for once, we can see the struggles that you're um, dealing with, the, the prices of food and housing and higher education and, and early childhood education and daycare. So um, I'm looking forward to getting back to this debate and hopefully uh, being able to sit down with, among other people, Joe Manchin once again to have a further discussion about why we ought to move forward with the enhanced Well, well Senator, let's, let's talk about that. Your colleague, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, has expressed concerns about the child tax credit. It was reported in the Huffington Post that he opposes the credit because he believed people might spend the money on drugs. How do you separate bad faith arguments like that from genuine concerns, including debt reduction and the like? Well, in terms of debt reduction, what I would be happy to do is extend the child tax credit for 10 years and pay for it for 10 years. And I mean pay for it by reversing the Trump tax cuts for the wealthy and and some other things that I think the American people would be uh, extremely excited about. So for me, the issue is not should we add to the deficit to pay for the child tax credit. I think we should pay for the child tax credit. I've always believed that. Even if we didn't pay for it, Columbia University says that we're going to get an eight times return on the investment on the child tax credit because Childhood poverty costs our country a trillion dollars a year, and instead of you know having to constantly pay for the effects of childhood poverty, if we could actually cut it in half, or in my you know my most optimistic view, end childhood poverty, then you're not paying you know on the back end for the cost of mitigating it. I before I was in the Senate, I was the superintendent of schools in Denver, and there were a lot of kids in the Denver schools living in poverty, and they were not living in poverty because their parents weren't working. Their parents were working often two and three jobs, and they still couldn't get their 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 kids out of poverty because of the cost of you know, housing and, 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 and groceries and rent, you know, in the Denver metro area. So I'm continuing to have a debate with my friend Joe Manchin, who's worried about what people will spend the money on and is, is you know, thinks that this is you know, some some form of welfare. I think it's very clear in countries that have child allowances like the child tax credit that the workforce participation rates are actually higher 
than they are in the United States of America. That's no surprise to me, having worked in Denver, because I know what you know how important it is for families, for example, to be able to afford daycare so that they can actually work. I mean, we've seen that throughout the entire pandemic, and that's the reason also why, over, you know, all, I think the last thing I saw was 97% of families were spending this money on food, rent, or childcare. What are you willing to concede then to make the child tax credit permanent? Manchin says that there are so many fiscal responsibilities. Quote, we have to get our house in order first. He talks about obligations like Medicare, Medicaid, dependency on retirees, and things uh, like that. What are you willing to, to concede to get up to his level to figure out how this can move forward? Yeah, I mean, first of all, as I said, and I've said this from the very start, from the time that I introduced the child tax credit, I believe we should pay for it. And I think that over time, we've got to get out of the fiscal mess that we're in in Washington, D.C. I deeply regret that uh, there were politicians in Washington that cut taxes for the wealthiest people, as I said, almost by $8 trillion and didn't pay for a single cent of it. I deeply regret that we fought two wars in the Middle East that lasted for 20 years and didn't um, pay for a cent of it. I deeply regret that we've got a healthcare system that costs as much as twice as much as any other industrialized country in the world, and we're amassing a lot of debt because of that. I, but I do think that we should not use the, those complaints or those laments to now say that when we have a policy that we can put in place where we can say that America doesn't have to be have one of the highest childhood poverty rates in the country, and we're willing to pay for it, that somehow we should try to disqualify that on fiscal grounds. I'm more than willing to consider cutting off the child tax credit so that it doesn't go up you know, to $400,000. That is a vestige completely of uh, the work that Donald Trump did in his 2017 tax bill, 52% of which went to the top 5% of Americans in stark contrast to what we're trying to do today. But it was it was in that bill that they took the child tax credit up to $400,000 for a married couple. I would gladly cut it off at $150,000 and maybe even below that. So there is a there is a path, I think, I'm hearing from you, things that you could give and take. But I also want to talk about the concerns that the child tax credit contributes to rising inflation. I don't think that anybody really seriously believes that, that that $425 a month on average for people living in the state of Colorado are driving prices up. We have and it certainly wouldn't be true if we if we pay for it, as I've described it. We should. I mean, that 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 would be offsetting because of the revenue we would be raising to pay for it. I do believe that we have a broader issue uh, with inflation because of supply chains and the recovery, um, the, the recovery that we're uh, seeing a very nice jobs report today, by the way, that is that is that is um, raising prices for families. And we really have to keep our eye on that. And the Federal Reserve, I think, also is going to have its hands full at the moment to try to make sure that that inflation does not get out of control. It just defies imagination that the child, people spending the child tax credit to buy what little daycare they can get for their kids is the source of the inflation that we're confronting now.
But again, that is a talking point that Republicans are putting out. I understand. There. I mean, people people will think of all kinds of talking points to not benefit people in our society that need it most. I don't understand it. I've been in D.C. at the end of the year when when tax cuts were expiring for the wealthiest people in the country, when tax cuts were expiring for the most profitable corporations in America, and Congress had absolutely no trouble uh, extending those tax cuts and never paying for it. And now we have the child tax credit that that we expanded that, that ends at the end of the year, and Washington, D.C. walked out on it knowing that the result of that was going to be doubling childhood poverty in this country and increasing hunger in the United States by a quarter. It gives you a sense of how out of whack people's priorities are back there. Well, let's move on with Build Back Better, because that seems to be a, a huge, well, it is a huge part of the president's uh, plan moving forward. Um, we know that it includes efforts to slow the effects of climate change, effects we know contributed to the Marshall Fire here in Colorado. If Democrats can't get Build Back Better passed, are there other ways the Senate can start addressing climate change right now? There are. I mean, look, I think that the, the money that is in there for climate is really important, and a lot of it is tailor-made for exactly what we're doing in Colorado. There are tax incentives that I worked on in the Finance Committee that are critical to our clean energy and um, community in the state of Colorado, to our clean energy manufacturing uh, folks in the state of Colorado. There's $27 billion for forestry uh, and for watershed protection and mitigation, $27 billion for conservation that would be so important to our farmers and our ranchers and soil health. So look, I think that the contours of what's in Build Back Better um, with respect to climate are good. I wish they went further, frankly, than they did, but I think they're good. And we've got to find a way to try to get them passed. My own view of this is that we ought to just take a beat you know, here, it did not forever, but for a week or two, and see whether we can reconstruct something that makes more sense. For example, I am you know, very unhappy with the fact that this bill does not reverse the Trump tax cuts for the wealthiest people in the country. Again, 52% of which went to the top 5% of Americans. That is, that's a commitment that many people made that I think we should fulfill. That, by the way, would raise $710 billion to pay for a lot of what we're talking about. I think doing the, the climate stuff would be important, extending the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. And I, I would say trying to you know do what we can on the universal preschool would be a really important thing too. So to me, that would be a pretty coherent package. Right. But Senator, it seems to me that this is a discussion you have to have with members of your own party because it seems to me they're holding the cards here. How do you address that? No doubt about it. Well, I think you, the way I'm addressing it is by saying that, look, there's one senator who thinks that we shouldn't reverse the Trump tax cuts on the wealthy. There's another senator who, for the moment, is saying that we are um, uh, that we that, that it's OK to raise taxes on working people and the poorest people in the country during a pandemic. And 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 then because of the way that the House and Senate leadership constructed this bill, it cuts taxes for three quarters of the millionaires in, in America because of the state and local tax deduction. Together, none of that, you know, together, that doesn't make sense. I think we can write a much better bill than that and one that um, 
that one that can hopefully get, will get 50 votes in our caucus and, and get signed by the president. The massive destruction of the Marshall Fire has only exacerbated the issues of affordable housing in Colorado. The market was very tight before the fire, and home prices continue to rise. How can the federal government address this crisis, not just along the Front Range, but across Colorado? Housing. Yeah, it's just, we have a widespread crisis in this state that's affecting everybody's uh, quality of life, whether it's urban or rural or mountain communities. And it's gotten so bad, you know, that, that there are places where we can't fill jobs, we can't grow our economy and where, you know, people that are working can't, you know, can't afford to live. And I don't want Colorado to turn into San Francisco or turn into Seattle. So I recently put together a, um, a housing affordability strategy group, of people from all over the state of Colorado, rural and urban and everything in between to give us a set of recommendations. And what they said was we need to increase supply. We need to give communities more flexibility. We need to prevent unnecessary evictions and we need to integrate innovation in a way that we never have before. And the federal government, we have very specific recommendations underneath that, I think to, to, allow the federal government to be a, a better partner than it historically has been. But this is going to take all of us. When I say it's a crisis, I mean it's a crisis. There are people that are making decisions. You know, there's not, they're make, there are people making decisions who are graduating from college, having to live in their parents' basement because they can't find a place to live. I talked to somebody last week in Montrose who he and his folks are sleeping on their shop floor of their small manufacturing mm. facility because none of them can afford rent without paying more than 50% of their income in rent. In, in in Denver, it was very common when I was school superintendent that I'd meet people uh, who taught in Denver public schools who, who lived here as well and paid rent or, or actually even owned houses. Today, that seems like an impossibility. So I, I think that we the exciting thing is that there is money in the in the Recovery Act that, that Governor Polis and the legislature are going to be using to try to relieve uh, some some of the short-term issues issues without that with respect to housing, and also think hard about what the long term should look like. So, I think there's some help on the way. Senator, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Senator Michael Bennett, on the future of the child tax credit and the Build Back Better bill. We spoke on Friday. Up next, a number of election clerks are now under investigation in Colorado. We'll sort through what that's about. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. Three. 
That's how many Republican county clerks are currently being investigated for their handling of sensitive election software information. You might have heard of the ongoing situation with Mesa County's clerk, Tina Peters, but in recent weeks, Colorado's Democratic Secretary of State said she's now looking into the clerks in Douglas and Albert County, too. Here to catch us up on everything is public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. Hey, Benta. Hi. Let's start with what these clerks did or are alleged to have done, which is make copies of the hard drives for their county voting equipment. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yes. So that's how all of these three instances are similar. Um, What they have in common is that the Republican county clerk was involved with making this image or a complete copy of the hard drive of the voting machines. And this happened before a regular post-election software update. So these are system updates that happen each year. The hard drives have the full record of the election, including underlying passwords of the systems and election logs. I guess my question is why? Why make these copies and why does it matter? So a little bit of the backstory here. Two of the counties, Albert and Mesa, use Dominion voting machines. Um, Dominion is based in Denver. And the company supplied voting equipment to close to 30 states, including some of the swing states like Georgia, in the last presidential election. And Dominion has been at the center of false conspiracies that the machines switched votes from Trump to Biden in 2020. None of the audits after the election or hand counts have found evidence of that. So that's not true. But the Mesa County clerk, Tina Peters, had said she was trying to investigate what she thought was fraud. And that's why uh, she captured these images or allowed them to be captured. The other two county clerks have spoken out in support of Peters' actions. It is worth noting, however, that Douglas County does not use Dominion machines. The county uses clear ballot voting machines. And that company has not been at the center of these election fraud conspiracies. All right. Now that I think we've got the general idea, let's get into specifics. We've heard a lot about the claims in Mesa County, where Clerk Tina Peters is accused of letting an unauthorized person make the copy and hold onto it. The result there was the data was spread to conspiracy sites online. What about these two new situations? Start with Elbert County first. Yeah, so in Elbert County, it it appears that the clerk did not bring in an outside person who who was not authorized to be there to take the images. So the clerk, you know, this happened in-house, but allegedly the clerk was talking to two people over the phone while the process was happening. The clerk did, however, make the copies of the hard drive and give them to two attorneys. And I talked to former Republican Secretary of State Wayne Williams about, is this an issue that the clerk allegedly gave the hard drive copies to these attorneys. And Williams said state law does restrict who is allowed to access the secure information. So distribution is limited to people who've had a background check and have sworn an oath to secrecy. So he says these attorneys may not be allowed to, to hold on to this information. And Williams says that's because the hard drive has a copy of the entire election record. That includes all of the ballots. And some of those ballots could have personal identifying information on them. And Colorado's Constitution ensures a secret ballot. And is the Douglas County clerk accused of something similar? Yes, but there's some key differences. As I mentioned, Douglas County is not using Dominion, is using clear ballot. And so far, there's no indication that anyone outside of the Douglas County clerk's office was involved. And the Secretary of State's office, I, I talked to them, and they said creating a backup copy of the voting machine hard drive may not pose a problem. So it depends on if the copy was made following the proper procedures. 
and if the copy is stored securely. So right now, the state is asking Douglas County's clerk for for more information. So it's very possible that in Douglas County, the clerk didn't do anything to violate state law or election rules. So we can understand this clearly. Is it against state rules to make these copies or just to do it without the state knowing or to do so in a way that doesn't follow certain security procedures? I think the best way to describe it from from the state and what Wayne Williams told me is it's not against state rules necessarily just to make a copy. That may not be a problem. It's how you do it and what happens to the copy. So it has to be done securely and the information can't be given to third parties. And you, you referenced this earlier, but of these three instances that we're talking about, Mesa County would be the most serious. A, a judge had banned Peters from overseeing the 2020 one election, um, and a grand jury is weighing election tampering allegations against Peters because she does admit that she gave access to this information to someone who was not authorized to to be in the room and to see the hard drives. How does partisanship play into this? I mean, you have a Democratic Secretary of State investigating Republican county clerks. Yeah, that that definitely you know, is, is, is a big thing as well. On the Republican side, a lot of people, there's definitely concerns and accusations that this is politically motivated. Um, and they see Griswold as very partisan and just going after Republicans for being Republicans. And Mesa County Clerk Peters has said that multiple times. Griswold, Griswold has sent out fundraising emails highlighting these investigations, but um, she's seen this as I'm, I'm just enforcing state rules. And I would say there are plenty of Republicans and county clerks who think that even though there's partisan differences, they agree with how Griswold has handled this. And they may disagree with her on other things, but um, in the election world, there's a lot of concern about these actions on on the so behalf happens, of clerks. Yeah. I see. I see. So what happens next? So in, in Mesa County, we're waiting to see what will happen with the grand jury. Um, and there's also another lawsuit that was filed, the state filed to block Peters from overseeing the twenty. 22 election. So we'll see if she's indicted with these criminal charges. And then when it comes to Albert and Douglas counties, the state is just asking for more information about how the hard drives were captured and what happened to that information. Um, If those counties don't respond to the state's order for more information, I anticipate there could be legal action there. All right. That's public affairs reporter Benta Berklin catching us up on the investigation and three Republican county clerks handling of sensitive voting machine information. After the break, finding commonality in mixed company. I'm Nathan Heffel, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The stretch of Highway 550 between Silverton and Uray takes drivers over Red Mountain Pass at 11,000 feet. The road clings precariously to the edge of plunging cliffs and sees as much as 25 feet of snow each winter. It's terrified many a soul and taken a few. Yet wagon drivers paid to use the road in the late 1800s to get valuable ore from mines to market. When automobiles came along, few believed one could make the trip. But in 1911, a doctor went from Uray to Ironton in a Model T for a house call. After the road was paved in the 50s, it became a tourist destination. And since then, many travelers have braved the treacherous yet exhilarating 20-mile drive. It's called the Million Dollar Highway. But the awe-inspiring views and bragging rights to driving one of the world's most unforgettable roads are priceless. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Coble & Company. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Author Jenny Shank's childhood in Denver was all about differences. The different neighborhoods she was bused to for school, the classmates and friends who grew up much differently than she did. That experience is at the heart of her award-winning short story collection, Mixed Company. Two words that sometimes have an awkward ring to them. Jenny, welcome to the program. So glad you're here. I am delighted to be here. I always think of the phrase, such questions were not asked in Mixed Company. Was there a reason why you chose Mixed Company as your title, uh, specifically thinking of that phrase? Yes. Actually, that's like a really old-fashioned phrase that you probably wouldn't say anymore. I think it's right? um, from the 1950s or something when totally everyone was kept separate, men from women, kids from adults. There were certain things you were supposed to say and do in the presence of certain people and not in others. And I, it was playing on that as a joke because uh, I think it's a funny phrase. And my book is what happens when you get every kind of people together. We'll go into that more. Mixed Company, it's a collection of funny stories about people trying to reach across chasms caused by differences in race, in gender, in disability, in language, political beliefs, and come to some kind of understanding um, or connection, maybe love, maybe friendship, or at least respect. And so all the stories have situations in which um, people of different types are forced to contend with each other in some way. So tell us a little bit about your past and and how those differences and how you bring those into your work play out in your writing style. So I think it's really subconscious because um, I wrote these stories over a long period of time. And then when I put them together in a collection, I thought, oh, they have this theme. And the reason why they have this theme, I think, is because I grew up in Denver during the era of court-ordered busing for racial integration. So from when I was six years old, I was getting on a bus in Southeast Denver, and I rode it to um, Cheltenham Elementary first, which was near the Old Mile High. And most of my classmates were, um, most of them were Mexican-American or immigrants from other places. And so I was immersed in that culture. And then they rode the bus to my neighborhood for the later part of elementary. And then uh, middle school, I got on the bus. I went to Northeast Denver to Cole in the Five Points area. And most of my classmates were black and I was immersed in that culture. And then uh, high school, we all kind of mixed together at TJ in South Denver. So that was my experience growing up of often finding myself in classrooms and friendships and teams with people who had very different backgrounds than me. And of course, Mile High refers to where the Denver Broncos play. I know it has a a corporate name, but but that is what you mean. And TJ means Thomas Jefferson High School, right? I don't call Mile High by anything that corporations tell me to call it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think everyone knows the old Denver Broncos stadium. You mentioned earlier that you feel these are a collection of funny stories, but I I didn't quite get that. Do you truly view all of these stories as funny or is there something more and deeper there? Um, they They are all a mix of serious and funny. I've heard it described as an Irish moment, something that's funny and sad at the same time. I think especially if I read them out loud, even in the serious ones, the sad ones, you will get the humor in the dialogue, in in the way that the characters gain a perspective on their situation. So there's definitely serious themes in them, but it's all leavened with humor, I think. 
one of the stories that particularly intrigued me is the story called La Sexicana. It's about a girl named Araceli and a woman named Charlotte. Araceli is Hispanic. Charlotte is white. Tell me how these characters came together. So in the story, Charlotte is, she has kind of a dead-end journalism job. She's working at an alt-weekly, but um, all she's doing is mailing out uh, tear sheets to advertisers. She wants to be a journalist, a writer. And while she's in this dead-end job and not fulfilling her career goals, she thought, I need to do something else with my life. I know I'll volunteer and become a mentor for um, underprivileged youth. So Charlotte goes into this situation thinking that she's going to be the mentor. She's going to be the one to help Araceli because she's been to college. She has a job. She's been through all that. But in fact, it's Araceli who sort of influences Charlotte more because Araceli has a very, um, she ends up developing a very forceful personality in order to uh, make her place in the world. And she ends up having to kind of teach Charlotte that she doesn't need Charlotte anymore, that they both needed each other equally, and then they grew past each other. And I find that such an interesting story where Charlotte, uh, you know, does this as, quote, a foolproof do-good thing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to help this person out. And then in the end of the story, Araceli is this strong, resourceful woman, uh, goes to college. And then you have Charlotte, who is pretty much where she was in the beginning of the story. Yes, I think, and I'm hopeful for Charlotte after the story ends, I hope that she will feel herself shaken up a little bit. But I think that that's what's so interesting about acts of altruism. Acts of altruism are wonderful. We couldn't get by without them. But sometimes the person who is doing the giving goes in with this attitude that they are so great to be helping when in fact, I think the the person that's doing the receiving can sometimes give more to the relationship that forms. So is that kind of your reasoning behind writing this story? Or is there something else there that that you wanted to touch on with with this particular short story? So yes, sort of that. But it's, I mean, it definitely arises out of my experiences. I mentored a young lady from when she was 12 to when she was 18. And um, you go through that adolescence with them. It's definitely an interesting situation being the adult in that because sometimes they want to rebel against you. Sometimes they need your help. My story is fictional, but it was definitely inspired by those feelings of kind of push-pull that you have as you're trying to get young people on their way. And there definitely is is a racial component to these stories, right, in terms of that that push-pull and, and how you write them from a distinctly white perspective. But your characters are Black or Hispanic. Um, for example, in Local Honey, where you write about a white woman taking her adopted Black son to a Wu-Tang concert and seeing that experience through her eyes and how she sees her son growing up and experiencing life in a biracial family. Tie all of that together, writing from your perspective, a white perspective, in having these characters who are Black or Hispanic. Yes. So I chose to write from a white perspective because I don't think it's my place to write from a perspective of a different race than my own, especially not at this moment where we're realizing the importance of people telling their own stories. But at the same time, then I've noticed a lot of white writers then um, writing their books so that they don't have any non-white characters in them because they're maybe they're afraid, you know, so they'll set it in a time period that doesn't have any people of color in it, or they'll even set it in a city as Jess Rowe pointed out in his book, White Flights, there are writers that set books in very diverse cities and then just never mentioned that there are black people there. 
And I just, that didn't feel honest to me because of the way I grew up. I grew up with all kinds of people around me and I still have all kinds of people around me. And so I had to have all kinds of people in my stories and I had to put them in there in a way that was respectful. And that even though the perspective I'm writing from is the white woman, at any moment, those other characters can take control of the narrative and they do. And they are not, there's no white savior narratives, anything like that. It's, it's my characters go through a learning process as they grow and live with the other characters. And I think you do see that in Sexy Kana, where you do have this woman who may be on first glance, a white savior going in to help a Hispanic uh, student, but then it kind of turns as you read the story, right? She's an aspiring white savior. And I think, um, and that it's never true. I think if you look honestly at any situation that's set up to be like that, um, if you look at it honestly, it's not true. There's not a savior narrative there. Um, In the best case, there's a meeting of equals that are each learning from each other. With that said, could we not also read these stories from a Black or Hispanic lens, meaning from a Black or Hispanic author? Or is there a place for these stories to be told from a predominantly white lens? So first of all, my my story collections with a small press, I think it's sold like a few hundred copies. So it's not like taking up a whole lot of space. And, and in my work as a teacher and a book reviewer, I always put books forward by um, Black and Latino writers that I I just love. And not just because of their identities, just because the writing is so good. So I'd always recommend check out those other books. If you're going to read, you know, one book this year, don't make it mine. But if you're going to read 25 books, slip mine in there too. Uh, It's another perspective on the situation. Do you have a favorite story in the collection that really speaks to you that you want to talk about? It's hard to pick my favorite story, but there's one that I like to read out loud um, when I do readings at bookstores because it's kind of funny. And it's called Casa del Rey. Can you tell us a little bit before we get into that, what it's about? So it's a situation where I have the narrator, Carrie, lives in a condo in Boulder and the person next door dies and a new person moves in named Vanita. And she's kind of a mess and her mess impacts all the neighbors around So it's basically a classic crazy neighbor story. That's a story in which oftentimes it starts out with like, get a load of my crazy neighbor. And then by the end of the story, tables are turned and you realize that the person who was pointing the finger at the crazy neighbor is the one that was unreasonable the whole time. Okay. Why don't you read a little bit from Casa del Rey? I will. The day I met Vanita. I was almost three months pregnant and hauling grocery bags from my car when a mangled Impala drove up, bashed in on every side, its panels bulging, trim sagging, and mysterious clumps of wire snaking free. The snunroof was smashed in, as though something round and heavy had crushed it. Its headlights dangled, and an orange strap held the front bumper in place. Inside, the car was stuffed with bags, trash, and balled-up clothes, the distance from the front seat to the back window spanned by a rolled rattan shade and a single crutch. A woman shambled out of the Impala, her long stringy hair piled on top of her head, her glasses magnifying her eyes, which were all pupil. She wore sweatpants that sagged in the butt, one leg hitched higher than the other. Do you live here? She demanded. 
I hesitated. Yes, I admitted, never able to think of an honest way out of those inescapable opening lines of salespeople and the deranged. I'm Vanita, she said, extending her hand. Carrie, I said, shaking it. I'm considering buying the corner unit. She nodded toward Portrait and Courage's condo. But the parking space assigned to it is too far away. Will you be willing to trade your space? The crutch made me waver, but then I remembered the baby. I don't think so. We like our space. Do you know who owns these cars? She gestured at the vehicles in the other nearby spaces. I shook my head. She looked like if you so much as told her the time, she'd ask you to jumpstart her car next. And I'll note that reference to someone who's named Portrait in Courage. He's the former tenant of the condo Vanita is looking at. Can you describe a little bit more uh, Casa del Rey? Where is it? What it looks like? Because it does play a role in the story as well, the actual physical place. Yes. So it is a condo complex that is patterned in a faux Southwestern style. It's got spiky stucco walls and accents that make it look Southwestern. And it's kind of falling apart. It's the best place that a lot of these people can can afford to live. And it's also situated between two different trailer parks that are maintained by the city of Boulder um, to maintain some, some affordable housing. And so these are people that are trying to um, maintain their place in the housing market that is really tight. And so if a crazy neighbor comes in, the situation is really fraught because they don't have a lot of options and they have to make it work somehow with the crazy neighbor. And in the story, I love how Carrie and her husband, um, they almost see themselves as others, but yet they're in the same situation in this place as everyone else, just like everyone else, even though they feel that they're slightly above it. They do have that snootiness, don't they? But I think yeah. <laughs> I think that that plays into how a lot of us feel when we make that judgment like, oh, that neighbor is too much. We feel a little bit above the situation. Um, but by the end, for sure, Carrie realizes, no, we're humans. These are our neighbors. We need to treat them like with respect and um, get to know them. And we are not above. No one is above anyone because we're all humans. How long did it take you to to write these short stories? Did you do it in one sitting? Did you come back and, and put them all together in kind of this compendium? How, how did that work out? My short stories come randomly <laughs> and slowly, I would say, because I'm often working on novels. I write, I write novels too and, and other things. And so in the middle of writing a novel, I'll get an idea for a story. Or when I've just finished a draft of a novel, I'll, I'll come back and write another story. And some of them, a lot of them take... Um, quite a while. What normally happens is I'll get one glimmer of an idea and then I have to wait till the next glimmer comes up. And for example, the, the story you mentioned, Local Honey, I had this experience where I was, uh, I was a music critic and I went to a Wu-Tang Clan show and I just got like moshed around really hard there. And I thought it would be so funny. I think when I went, I was like in my twenties, but I thought it would be so funny to put a middle-aged woman in that same situation. So I just sort of held that thought and then later on, you know, a few years later, I had the idea um, that I wanted to write about a white family that adopts black kids just based on my observations and some friends that I have. And so I put those two sparks together and then I was able to come up with the story. So it's a slow process of accumulating these different glimmers of interest that I have and then putting them together. Usually when I have those two elements that are coming together, I can sit down and write a draft. 
The only one that came out super quick was the story called Last Summer Song, where I'm kind of addressing the hit song of the summer. That just came out. I was listening to a song on the radio and it was like the one that was popular the year before. And I just kind of started talking to it in my head. So that is one story that came out really easy and quick. Last Summer Song is is essentially written from the perspective of a pop song that everyone bobs their head to during the summer, but then it goes away. And it's such an interesting look. Um, and it's, I think, slightly different than all of the other stories. Yes, I have a couple in there that are, um, I guess you would call them flash fiction or shorter, and they're more stylistic than character driven. And that's one of them for sure. But I think some of the themes of those short ones are the same as the long ones. And so I like I like that rhythmic variation in the length. Jenny, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much. I really enjoy hearing your perspective. Thank you so much for talking with me. It was great. Author Jenny Shank lives in Boulder. Her short story collection, Mixed Company, won the George Garrett Fiction Prize from the Texas Review Press. Shank also teaches creative writing at Regis University in Denver. When we come back, the month-long effort to find Mia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Housing is an increasingly urgent issue for many Coloradans. Our communities are at an economic reckoning point. Lawmakers are trying to tackle the problem this year. They've got more money to do it than ever before. But is that money the answer and how far will it go? I'm Andrew Kenny, a host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. In our latest episode, we tackle the housing situation. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or on the new CPR app. For more than a month, countless animal lovers across the Western Slope were gripped by the same question, where is Mia? CPR's Stina Sieg has the story of a lost dog and the people who work to get her home. Well, I'm Charles. I'm Hannah. And this is Mia. Mia's a shy, short-haired white dog with brown spots and floppy ears. She's on the couch, nuzzled up to Charles Regis and his girlfriend Hannah Posenti. Mia's eight, Charles's dog. A rescue who's mostly quiet, unless she's eating. She gobbles up some treats, her ribs showing. She's still got a lot of weight to put back on, but the vet says she's doing good, all things considered. And they'll never know all the things Mia went through. The saga started the day after Christmas, when the couple was driving back home to Grand Junction from Denver on I-70 in a winter storm. I had a patch of black ice and the whole car cut right. And by the time I came to, she was hurt and the dog was gone. And the Jeep was on its side. Miles from any town, about seven from Gypsum. Hannah was taken to the hospital with a broken neck. And as Charles waited for the tow truck, he kept searching for Mia in the snow. He like did all he could looking for her that night. But there were no signs of Mia. The next day, Hannah reactivated her Facebook account just to post about Mia on groups dedicated to lost and found pets. Days passed. Those posts were liked and shared, and the search continued with the help of strangers, who also left food out for Mia. And they were like their own little village looking for Mia, a dog they had never met before. And if this village had a mayor, it would be Janet. This is Janet Cross, and I'm from Eagle, Colorado. 
Janet lives about 20 minutes from the crash site. And 10 days after the incident, she was able to set up a trail camera there. She had heard that pets will keep returning to where they lost their people. And that's exactly what Mia was doing. Janet downloaded video from the camera at home and saw Mia was coming to the crash site twice a day. She's looking at the spot. She's she's looking for her family. She's looking skinny. It's freezing out. With temperatures way below zero. So yeah, it was it was pretty heartbreaking. But also hopeful. Mia was alive. There were so many more sightings by Janet and others, and near misses, too. One of the days when Charles and Hannah came to the crash site, they left at 5 that afternoon. The trail camera recorded Mia at 7. You could tell she was like, wait, what? I, I smell them. And the fact that they lived two hours away just made everything so much more difficult. Just any day we came back and just came back empty-handed, it was terrible. Meanwhile, Mia's story was still being shared over and over. And Janet from Eagle got a trap from animal control, which the agency required her to check every hour. So she did, parking at a nearby gas station between checks. Finding Mia was basically Janet's full-time job. But I just couldn't give up. (laughs) I just couldn't give up on her. Then things got more dire. A deer fence the crash had destroyed was rebuilt, and many of Mia's online followers worried she was trapped behind it. There were no Mia sightings for eight days. And then I got a call from a woman, like, I'm looking at your dog. The woman was about 10 miles from where Hannah and Charles had crashed. Janet put out a trap again, and a friend drove Hannah, still in a neck brace, to the area. That first night, Mia got scared off. But they stayed nearby. And that next morning, there Mia was. And she walked right up to Hannah, who was recording the moment on her phone. The video stops because Mia started jumping all over her. When they got home, Mia knocked Charles off his feet as he melted into tears. And when Janet heard the news, she couldn't believe it. She fought traffic and predators and snow and wind, and I mean, she made it. After one month and one day, people are still sharing Mia's story on Facebook, now often with the words, never give up hope. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. It's time to turn the page with Colorado Matters and author Patricia Raven. Her new book is a historical mystery called All That is Secret. A young black professor learns her father has been murdered in 1920s Denver and investigates. Even if you haven't been able to read the book, it promises to be an engaging virtual discussion. So join us tomorrow. It's free. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. That's CPR.org slash turn the page. And that's Colorado Matters for today. And thanks to our very engaging team. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. Ryan's back here tomorrow. 
We'd like to hear from you, of course, on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters. Or send us an email, coloradomatters at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thank you.